Well, you've got the courage to run out there and take a bullet and die. Have you got the courage to come into contact with your sadness? My name is Will Small. I'm a husband and a dad. And for the sake of my family and my community, I want to be a healthy man. Images on magazines would lead me to believe that means having ripped abs and a good paycheck. But I'm not satisfied with that story. Are you? Join me and my guests as we explore the idea of healthy manhood in the modern world. This is the Mankind Podcast. What kind of phrases come to your mind when you hear the word man or manly? Many of us probably think of things like muscles or tough or, I don't know, lawnmowers. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But are there other words you wish came to mind? I recently posted a question on Facebook asking what kind of words people would want to be associated with the word man. And there were so many good answers. Things like resilient, courageous, vulnerable, comforter, warrior, strong, soft. Many of these words might not often be seen in the same list. And to be honest, I love that. Who says you can't be strong and soft? What if our words could hold more meaning and not less? This episode is about compassion. One powerful word that can look many different ways. Dr. James Kirby is a researcher and senior lecturer in clinical psychology at the University of Queensland. His main research area is compassion. And he generously gave me some time to chat about manliness and compassion and all the different ways they can both look. There's so much gold in this conversation. And maybe it could change the way we think about some of these words. Maybe just share a little bit about your work and in particular, just just kind of give a basic understanding of what compassion is. Because I was thinking about it. It's a word that some people might think of as an emotion. Some people might think of it as an action. But as far as your work goes, being someone who researches compassion, could you just explain what it is or how you think of it? I mean, that's a great first up question. Uh, Exactly what you said. Most people, when they think of compassion, things immediately spring to mind. Uh, So they might immediately spring to um, say, you know, compassion is similar to kindness, perhaps being kind to someone. Um, or perhaps, as you've also mentioned, uh, it might be looked at as an emotion or an action. So we have intuitive understandings of what we see compassion as being, and that could be because we ourselves have been compassionate or we've been uh, on the receiving end from uh, someone's compassionate action, perhaps. So we've kind of already got this sense of what we mean by compassion, but I think that's part of the, the complexity is that there are so many different ideas about what compassion is. So if you can get it clear at the beginning, it can be very helpful. The definition that we try to, to, to sort of um, start with in order to create that clear kind of uh, foundation, if you will, is compassion is having a sensitivity uh, to suffering, whether that be in yourself mm. or in others. Uh, so that's a real engagement piece. So that's being able to, you know, hear, see, be aware of whatever that suffering uh, could be. And when we say sensitivity, sometimes a lot of people get caught up in this idea um, that, oh, you mean sort of that warm, cuddly, fuzzy kind of stuff, sensitivity. But what we kind of mean in some ways is um, are you able to pick up the signal 
do you have a sensitive enough de- sensitive enough detection system to pick up that signal? How loud does the noise need noise need to be for you to be able to recognise ah that's someone suffering or that's the sound of my speakers or that's my phone I can hear? People will have different uh, levels of sensitivity, of course. Um, but that's the first part, just being able to pick it up, be aware, uh, see the suffering and self or others. Um, and then the second part of the definition is, uh, you know, trying or, you know, trying if you can, as best you can, to have a commitment to alleviate or prevent that suffering. So we see it, you become aware of the distress or the suffering. Um, that's the first part, but then you have to do something to try to be helpful, really. Um, so sometimes the uh, example we can use is... Um, uh, you might see um, someone who is who is needing a, of help. They might have a it might be a doctor in the hospital with a patient with a broken arm, and the doctor can engage in with that suffering and see that the patient is in pain. They might even empathise with the patient. Oh God, I can feel your pain. <laughs> they they will really sort of try to be non-judgmental and perhaps even warm towards the patient. That's all fantastic. But if the doctor stops there. <laughs> Um, you wouldn't really call that very helpful. So you'd want them to then do the second part, which is then do something to heal the arm. Um, so you really need those two things working together. So a, a, a stimulus detection in response to whenever you... Yeah, right. It sounds, it sounds to me kind of like uh, it's like enacted empathy would be one way of thinking about it. Empathy being that sensitivity to what's going on, but then the actual response being that putting it into action. Yeah, you'll see some people's definitions being sort of, you know, compassion is essentially empathy plus action. Um, but that, that raises an interesting question. Does that mean I need to empathise with everyone I see who is suffering? I might not even see them. It might be a huge group of people, maybe even a country. Mm. Uh, that's not really a person. How does one empathise with a country? Um, but yet mm. I could still engage in some kind of action in order to help alleviate the suffering that's happening in that country by perhaps donating money to a, a very important uh, cause, maybe, you know, vaccinations or whatever it might be. And so, yes, for some people, uh, uh, we will naturally engage empathically along that path, but it's not a necessity is what we would say. Mm. Um, so, because uh, that and that's important because some people will, will struggle with, empathy uh, but that doesn't mean they're not caring or compassionate people um, so empathy is one way in um, but I'm more likely to be empathic towards people who are similar to me uh, than people mm. who are different to me so um, those empathic sure. regions kind of get blocked off pretty quickly um, and they're very easy uh, to activate that kind of tribalism and in versus yeah sure so um empathy has a lot of blockers in its way Mm -hmm. um so if you're relying only on empathy that makes it a little bit more tricky whereas if you can kind of go through some other paths as well which is kind of like oh no i've just got this you know i don't even have to really emotionally get engaged you know i just think this is the right thing to do and and you'll hear people do say that sometimes so you know there was a teacher um who jumped out to, uh, this is in America, with one of the mass shootings there, um, jumped out to, to take some bullets from hitting the kids and everyone was like, oh my God, you know, what heroic kind of compassionate action. Um, and they said, what, what were you thinking? He goes, well, you know, well, it wasn't. I just jumped out because I knew I had to save the kids. So he's not emotionally, empathically engaging because that's an effortful process mm-hmm. with the children's fear or panic. He is just going, bang, my kind of focus here is to, is to protect these vulnerable kids as best I can. 
um, and, and goes and does it. And it's really quite remarkable. It can lead to the very best in, in humanity. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think that's a great point. You know, part of the purpose of this podcast is to talk about uh, what it means to be a man. And I think that some some guys might immediately shut off going, I'm not that emotional. I don't really sense that deep. I don't have that deep kind of empathetic response. But what I'm hearing and what you're saying is actually that compassion is something that is accessible from a whole range of different entry points. And there's maybe uh, any of us can be compassionate regardless of how we're wired. Yes, no, that's, that's a fabulous summary. I mean, there are many ways of being compassionate. Um, there's not one way to be compassionate. Um, and then how we engage compassionately will also uh, be influenced by what we're capable of doing. You know, if, if, if I was the person sure. to see the, the, the individual with the broken arm, um, I can't repair the arm. I'm not a, a medical doctor. Um, but what I could do is call triple zero perhaps. Um, mm. If I had some alcohol, I might say, hey, chug back on some of this while we get you there just to numb the pain out a little bit. <laughs> I can see the sure, bones sure. right out. So there can be different ways you can engage um, compassionately. Um, some of us can be keen to jump in and rescue um, mm. as opposed to uh, sit back and think what could be quite helpful or more helpful at this particular point. But we wouldn't say there's one right way of being compassionate or not. It's sort of like degrees you know, or, or yeah, sure. and some people are going to be able to do the very best and other people are going to be, you know, moderate, low, lower. Um, when yeah. I say rescuing, you know, that's a really important one because a lot of people will want to jump in and do something because they're feeling distressed about seeing it. And then that can mean that there's actually, you know, more people needing helping because you haven't got the required resources or skills to be helpful. So an example there could be you might be, you know, drowning in the ocean here on one of our beautiful beaches and uh, Will, and I might think to myself, my goodness, I must save Will. And so I jump into the ocean to save you. But as I jump into it, I realise, oh, God, I can't swim either. This was uh-huh. <laughs> We've got two people who need rescuing, whereas it would have been better to perhaps look for a surf lifesaver. How important is compassion in terms of human culture and society, uh, both maybe at an individual level as well as at like that collective societal level? What are some of the signs when compassion is present or when it's absent? How does that impact human flourishing? We're living through a pretty good example of the impacts um, compassion can have on flourishing just with the current state of play with COVID-19. Um, so compassion, you know, if we root it in this understanding that it's being sensitive suffering self and others with the commitment try to be helpful and alleviate or prevent it in some ways. Um, we can see how important social connectedness is. And so you kind of need people to be able to see, hear you, feel your presence even when you're not around. Uh, so people can be helpful to you. So you can help each other. Um, and we see this great um, sense of interconnectedness between us. You know, in order for me to have this coffee, you know, I rely on many other people providing those goods for me to purchase and and make my coffee. And so um, in order to have a a flourishing sort of, you know, uh, community, we very much rely on each other um, to help us because 
Um, we can't do it all by ourselves. We like to think that we can, and that's sometimes a bit of a delusion we buy into, which is mm. kind of fed into some of our individualistic Western cultures. It's this sense that, you you know, you have to be, and this is can be a big issue for men, um, I have to be self-reliant, you know, but yeah, sure, but you don't have to be self-reliant for everything. But there can be this great sense that I must take care of all of my own needs um, and I can't ask for help from others. Um, and, of course, compassion is, is, is a relating style. So it involves the relationship with yourself but also the relating style to others and, and from others. Sometimes we can be very good at showing that towards others to help them, um, but we say no uh, to them giving it back to us. We can be somewhat scared of receiving uh, compassion from others uh, for many different reasons. In terms of being able to know that you're supported, held in mind in a positive way, where if you were lost, someone would come to support you, um, help you um, in your time of need. That helps create that sense of connectedness, belonging, uh, which we very much need, and that helps um, communities, families, and uh, societies thrive. Yeah, that's huge. Actually, I'm quite interested in what you mentioned as well about the uh, ability to show compassion to yourself or not obviously we do see people that seem very compassionate to others and yet in some ways we're all our own harshest critic um how important is that that how important is it that we give compassion to ourselves in order to be actually genuinely helpful to others oh okay that's a great question and we get i get asked this all of the time don't you need to be self-compassionate before you're compassionate to others that's not exactly your question but that's often the question i get um and no, of course not. Um, of course, you don't have to be. Um, there, there, you know, I, I see plenty of people in therapy who are, you know, beat themselves up um, terrifically well, um, and it just mm. destroys them. But if I was to show any signs of suffering in the chair, they'd be the first to help me. <laughs> so mm. there are many doctors who show tremendous, many nurses, uh, many health professionals who show tremendous amount of care and compassion towards others but totally neglect their own needs they run themselves mm. into the ground they take on too much responsibility they're constantly um almost uh, sacrificing their own needs for everyone else's i mean my mother's a perfect example of that it's like mom just what do you want forget about me i can see you need help don't worry about it i can do it <laughs> you see these things all of the time however there are some people who are also who are very good at um perhaps focusing on themselves in in this uh, this sense of uh, self-care in some ways and and perhaps aren't as good as connecting with others and showing compassion to them some of the work i've done is we've looked at how people might differ in expressing compassion to others receiving compassion and being self-compassionate and what we find is for the most part people are quite good at showing compassion to others um, and even when you're experiencing mental health distress whether it be depression or anxiety they, that doesn't get impacted. They're still very good at showing compassion to others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, however, what we do see for people who struggle with um, mental health difficulties is their, their levels of self-compassion and their ability to receive compassion diminishes greatly. They actually become mm -hmm. quite scared of it um, and fearful of it and block it out. Um, and, uh, and that impacts their mental health significantly. Um, and so one sure, of the things sure. that we try to do in therapy is to get people less scared of compassion coming in and start to look at, okay, what is your fear? What do you think might happen if this does occur? To try to get a sense because there's an there's a important reason there that they're stopping it coming in. So let's get a sense of what that reason is, what's going on there, what's the worry, so we can address it.
Yeah, wow. I'm, I am particularly interested in if you found anything in your research around compassion in men. Um, uh, is it something that men or women find? Uh, do, you, do you kind of find more compassion in men or women? Are there different kind of blockers um, in terms of, of men's mental health? You know, how much of a difference does their kind of levels of compassion make? Um, yeah, just in terms of your research, have you found anything particular in, in just kind of obviously it's going to be generalizations, but how men experience or relate to compassion? Yeah, and the key there is really um, when many people think of compassion, they think of a context where someone's sad or upset and typically you would go into a consoling kind of reaction or action. You might give them a hug. Um, or mm-hmm. try to be reassuring or validate whatever the, the sadness might be. So the key is that's typically what comes to mind. Or another classic example is um, the mother responding to the crying of their baby. And so mm-hmm. the baby cries, that's a distress signal, mum comes close, mum gives it a cuddle, might use a different tone of voice. It's okay, darling. You know, a soft, calming voice. Um, kiss her to kiss the baby, cuddle the baby. Um, feed the baby sometimes as well. So that's kind of the images that a lot of people immediately generate, but that's very contextual. So compassion's contextual. So yes, and that suffering, that might be what's necessary to help alleviate it. But um, what that, that, that kind of warm gentleness would not be so helpful if you're running into a burning house to save a family um, who's, who, who are caught inside it. So a firefighter is running in there to do that. Now, when they do that, they're not going in with a, oh, beautiful family, it's okay, I've got you. They're running in with an urgency, right, a real fear mm, mm. that, you know, they might die. Um, so the firefighter, why are they running in there? You know, what would be the firefighter's motivation? Well, try to prevent suffering, right? They're trying to save these, this family's life. So the motive is exactly the same, trying to prevent suffering, try to reduce suffering from this family. But because the context is one of, Uh, more increased threat, um, the burning uh, of the house, there's going to be a different emotional texture to it. So one of um, urgency and fear. And then you might change that again with someone who might be um, getting racially abused. And so there's that sense of justice or injustice that, you know, can emerge within you and you might get a a really uh, intense striking of anger through the body because you're Mm. seeing how this person's being treated and how unjust that is. And that might compel you into doing some kind of action to try to stop um, the racial vilification. And so what I'm kind of getting to is often when we think of compassion, we think of the warmth around sadness. And that is exactly what sadness would often uh, require, uh, connecting, because sadness is often about loss. So you want a connectedness and you want a hug. But compassion is so much more than that because the suffering is going to differ. So depending on the context, Men are going to be better at some of those jobs and women might be better at some of those other ones. So men and women, you know, the idea is uh, who has more, and this is an in- of interest for many researchers, I think is, is, is not such a good question because mm-hmm. uh, men have certain strengths, women have certain strengths, and there are many different contexts in which compassion is necessary. Um, and what we want people to do is, is try to just recognise there's going to be a lot of differences there. There was an interesting study um, done um, in empathy 
Um, and so a lot of these empathy measures, um, items are things like, you know, I can feel someone, with someone else's in pain, I can feel their pain. Or, um, I have uh, tender feelings towards other people when they're distressed. And on these items, typically women do better than men. Um, so they have higher levels of uh, what we call trait-based uh, empathy. As you can see, the items are kind of worded in a way that, that might skew it in that, in that fashion. However, if you tell men um, in another task where they have to identify emotions in another person, which is part of what empathy is about, if you say to them, listen, um, we'll pay you if, you if you do it accurately, if you can do it as, you know, as accurately as you can, we'll pay you. More, the more accurate you are, you get paid. There's no difference between men and women on their ability wow, to wow. accurately uh, uh, identify the emotion of the other. So it's just the motivation. So empathy is important. So empathy is a, an ability to feel what another's feeling or think what another's thinking, but you can use it for any motivation. So um, you can use it for caring motivations, but I could also use those uh, empathic skills of mine uh, to woo a girl, perhaps, or a partner. I could think, what would she really like to hear? And I could tell her those things um, in order for her to, to like me. Um, I could also use it competitively. You know, know what is really going to hurt my competitor here? What, you know, if I was them, what would, what's my weakness? And then you can go and use that in order to, to get an advantage over them. I mean, the person who's most likely to hurt you is the person who knows you the best. And so they are able to empathically engage with you. So a random person on the street is unlikely to level um, a, you know, a judgmental criticism against me, but my wife could because my wife mm. knows me really, really well. And if she leveled something against me, it's because she knows me so well and she knows my weaknesses and knows my flaws. Mm. A lot of people just think empathy is the, the end, end game. You know, if we can be empathic, we're going to solve the world's problems. And it's like, well, yeah, for some, because that care will naturally be there. Most people are, are pretty caring people. But empathy is just a cognitive capacity. You have to think about why would we have this capacity to feel and think what other people are thinking and feeling. It has to have a function. And uh, the function of, of that could be for many reasons. One, of course, could be compassion, but one also could be competition. So the idea is we've got these um, wonderful uh, uh, skill sets and abilities, but depending on what we're wanting, they can be used in very different ways. Yeah. So I'm definitely hearing that, and it it's very much fits into this, conversation about uh, what it means to be a man or a woman or masculine or feminine a lot of these kind of ideas are actually far more complex than we often kind of the meaning that we attach to them and we might think of compassion is feminine when part of what I'm hearing is that actually all of these traits can be expressed in a really broad variety of ways they are contextual so in some ways we could actually say there are what we would normally classify as masculine expressions of compassion or feminine expressions of compassion and that it's actually a bigger thing. And one of the things I've talked about throughout this kind of this podcast um, series has been that, you know, even those terms masculine and feminine don't map perfectly onto men and women. We kind of all have uh, that spectrum within ourselves and we can move across it. Um, so I'm finding it helpful there's a famous point you make because, I mean, what we would say is at the heart of compassion is courage. Mm. Think of all the frontline nurses and health uh, staff that are going to hospital right now risking infection. Mm. They're not going in there with warmth. 
they're going in there with this urgency. They're going in anxious, they're going in fearful, and not many people enjoy or would pleasantly choose to encounter such situations. So it takes tremendous courage to engage with that suffering. And that's the whole key message here, um, is a lot of people don't recognise just how much courage it takes to move towards the things um, you find distressing. Uh, so, for example, we do some work with veterans um, with PTSD. Now, these veterans are ridiculously courageous. You know, they'll go out and fight for the country. Um, they've got each other's um, backs. They have to trust that each other will have each other's backs to, to give themselves, um, a, you know, trust that they can go out and, and do what's needed. But then when it comes back, when they come back, there's a lot of these guys can really struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder. And when we work with them and we work with them through a compassion-focused therapy approach, um, a lot of them choose to avoid certain emotions, not by their choosing or wanting, you know, but just because of, you know, what's been happening to them, um, which has been awful. But they can be very scared of emotions, like sadness, for example. Very, very uh, concerned about showing and being vulnerable in that way. So what we say is, well, you've got the courage to run out there and take a bullet and die. Have you got the courage to come into contact with your sadness? Do you have that kind mm. of courage? Because that's where we need to go. We know you're courageous, but do you have the courage to go towards that emotion that you don't like? And so that's one of the key parts of compassion. Do you have the courage to engage with what you don't like about yourself or that you find is a struggle or is something that's distressing that brings about suffering? Uh, so nothing there is soft or weak. Uh, yet somehow compassion's been lumped into that category at times, um, but it has nothing to do with that. It takes tremendous courage. That is so helpful. I love that that framing because courage seems like a big enough word to hold that front line, you know, running out there in front of a bullet, but also it takes, like you've said, such deep courage to be vulnerable, to sit with the depths of, you know, the stuff inside you that you would rather kind of run away from so it seems like that's exactly what we need you know in terms of men's health or in terms of anyone's health the courage to be able to go across that spectrum and to those different spaces and what I find is that sometimes there's kind of been maybe these cultural narratives or these stories around where men are or aren't allowed to go and it feels like yes you're allowed to run in front of the bullet but you're not allowed to sit with your sadness and and open up about it but I'm interested in how could we create more expansive definitions of what it means for everybody, man, woman, child, whoever. I wonder if you have any thoughts around that, kind of how we almost create uh, a bit more space uh, for men to think of themselves or how, how to develop that. You know, what are some of the things you do to help people actually develop that ability to sit with the sadness or to sit with the depths or to go to some of those difficult places? Mm. And I think the, the key point you, you kind of um – illustrating there is that there are many social cultural pressures um, that none of us choose. We just happen to be born into this particular time period, mm -hmm. uh, into these particular families. And as a result, um, what can be a big issue is that there's a perceived way a man must be. Um, and that can often come through uh, media portrayals of what it is to be a man. Um, so this is some work I've been doing uh, with one of my colleagues, Dr. Jamin Day, um, where we're looking at um, masculinity in terms of that kind of traditional 
toxic masculinity, which a lot of people think about when they think of masculinity. Of course, there are literally hundreds and thousands of different definitions of what masculinity is and versions of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sort of hegemonic traditional masculinity where the men is tough, stoic, um, self-reliant, bit of a playboy, um, that's mm-hmm. kind of like uh, the alpha male, if you will, that's portrayed constantly in our media. So, you know, there's so many movies, you know, your Bruce Willis types, uh, Arnie Schwarzeneggers and so on and so The Rock and stuff. These kind of images are portrayed, but also we're also seeing uh, political leaders uh, who adopt that kind of alpha male um, mindset, mm. um, winning power, you know, important, huge countries. And so there's this sense that that is one way of being a man. And if I am to be that way or try to conform to that style of masculinity, there is a benefit potentially because it does bring potentially great powerful great and powerful positions. So if you're raised in a family where there's not a lot of warmth and there's not a lot of safety, um, your father's fairly dismissive and it's a bit cold, for example, you might learn to fear those warmth emotions because you haven't received any during your family of origin. You haven't got many strong memories of that warmth and love. So as a result, you lose access to those really important affiliative and when we say affiliative we mean like friendly kind of behaviors and emotions and so you lose access to them for starters and they're a great physiological regulator so when we talk about the mum regulating the baby it's through using those affiliative behaviors holding the baby touching the baby soothing the baby all these things help regulate our emotion but if you're not getting a lot of that and you're getting beaten in your family of origin um you know, there are some men who I speak to in therapy who've never been hugged by their dad um, or they'll say things like, you know, he's never told me he's loved me, for example. You know, they're weeping sometimes when they say that. Other times they just, no emotion, it's just, no. Nah. If that's starved within their family, there can be kind of a great development of fear towards those kinds of expressions to begin with. Um, but also, secondly, you start to think about, okay, what type of man can I be then? You know, and so then that model of manliness becomes attractive. Okay, that's something I can do. There's plenty of role models out there for me to uh, to follow and adopt. Um, I'll, I'll I'll get engaged in in that and try to uh, pursue that. And that takes quite a lot of effort because being viewed as a masculine man is something that's given to you really by others. So it's other, mm-hmm. typically men who say, "Yeah, you're a tough guy." as opposed to um, you yourself saying, hey, yeah, I'm a tough guy. So you're constantly striving for social validation that I am a, a, you know, a tough masculine man. So therefore, that means you have to keep demonstrating in social settings how you're this tough guy. So you might binge drink, for example, take risky impulsive action to show, you know, listen, I don't care. Look at me. I'm a tough guy. You know, I'm brave and, and whatever. And then what, because they're constantly needing that. So it takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of effort to get that social validation. But then what can happen is, of course, um, you know, if you take the wrong action that looks feminine, that kind of effort you put into becoming masculine is kind of just knocked off. Um, and so what mm-hmm. we call that is it's very precarious. So you put a lot of effort in. It takes a lot of effort to get that status, but it can be easily lost. So it can be threatened. You can be threatened very easily as being feminine 
despite the fact that you've been creating this bravado, masculine identity. And then whenever it's threatened, what men tend to do is uh, overcompensate. And so we'll go back and come out even harder to show you, no, 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 this is how manly I am, dude. So there's been a stack of studies done on this, and I've done work on this as well, where we'll give men false feedback. And so we'll get them to complete a survey, or we'll take a swab, and we'll say something like, um, yeah, your testosterone's in the bottom 10% of men. Or we'll say, yeah, you just need to complete the survey, you're in the bottom 10% of, of um, men in terms of your masculinity. And then we get them to do uh, different exercises after it. One might be we offer them alcohol to drink. These were some researchers in the US. Another might be play a video game with his aggressive behavior. Um, another's a driving one. Um, and men who get given the false feedback will be more aggressive, will drive more riskily and drink more after their um, masculinity has been threatened. How we're viewing this idea of conforming to this sort of tough man uh, identity is a safety mm. behaviour. And that's no fault of the, of the individual. And yet we can be quick to say, no, you need to change. But it's like, hang on just a sec. If you're raised in a family environment where you're not getting access to this warmth and love to give you a, a sense of feeling secure, um, and so you mm. don't have any of that, you start to become fearful of that. And you start to think, okay, well, all this media and um, uh, Western individual, individualistic pressure is telling me I need to be a man, be self-reliant, mm. do it myself. Okay, I'll start to do that. And so they start to do that. And they start, there's some benefits from that, of course, that will come. Um, but there's also a trade-off to that. And part of that trade-off is you lose access to all that useful stuff um, mm. of affiliative emotion and behaviour. You become reluctant to uh, ask for help because that's seen as a weakness. And then, of course, thirdly, you're likely to do risky, impulsive behaviours. Um, so it's no wonder mm. men, you know, we do a lot of the homicide and, and murder, not only of women, mm. but of other men. You know, we, we commit huge percentages of that because a masculine is always threatened. And that's one of our aspects is to, once it is, to go back even harder. So there's, there's this negative self-reinforcing circuit or cycle that, it just kind of sounds like a bit of a, a downward spiral into more negative behaviours that reinforce each other. How does somebody, and I recognise it's probably a long journey, but how do people break that or how does that begin to change? And you see, that's what, what my response there would be. I mean, you'd have to have multiple levels of change. Um, often our thoughts are kind of like, how do we get the individual to change? Um, but again, what I'm kind of suggesting is that it's not that individual's fault. Um, if you've been raised in these environments and there is these cultures around manhood and what it means to be a man, um, which we didn't choose to experience, it's just what it is. If we shame the man into you should have known better and made that change, you're very unlikely to get any shift. In fact, when people are shamed in that way, what they'll typically do is get defensive or reject the idea completely. And um, and yep. firm more into even go stronger uh, with their belief of the masculine identity. Um, so that's an issue. Which obviously that we see that play out with uh, you know people talk about domestic violence statistics or something, and then there's kind of all that stop man hating. There's kind of some of that culture that's exactly what you just 
you just articulated. Yeah, no, that's right. And um, so then the, the issue becomes, okay, well, um, we need kind of multiple levels of change. Um, what that involves, I'm not entirely sure because um, that's hard. It's easier to, to work out where mm. problems are, but how to solve them is a bit more difficult. Sure. <laughs> but what we would be saying is um, it, 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 in terms of working with, with men in this case, in this sort of situation, is try not to shame them, try to de this is not your fault. You know, men have been growing up in societies like this from the beginning of the word dot. I mean, think of Sparta, you know, you know men and what men have to do um, because of the culture of that time. You know, think of all the men that are just sent out to war and killed and so on, drafted. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of these situations where no one's choosing to, to, to individually wanting to do that, but society is kind of, and, and cultural pressures have kind of forced this to, to, to um, occur to some degree. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is recognised, hey, it's not your fault this is the case, but it's marvellous that you're wanting to, to, to look at making a difference or change here. So although it wasn't your fault, this kind of context, you are trying to take some responsibility for what you do. And that's really quite impressive. Um, that there'll be people who come in, um, everything's against them. It would be really difficult to get change. But there's the wisdom there that I can't keep going down this path. Um, I might need to look at shifting something. I don't know how to go about it yet, but I, I need, that's where I need the help. I mean, that's the first bit of wisdom, knowing what you don't know and, and trying to seek yeah. for that. So one of the things we would be doing is sort of firstly, you know, recognising that this kind of approach has likely been helpful in many ways and validating that de-shaming those experiences um, and then trying to kind of uh, get in touch with, well, what worries you about compassion? So what we might be saying to them is, when you think of compassion, what comes to mind? And so we'll start to explore what they make of compassion, how they see compassion. Because if you've got fears of compassion, you're always going to block connectedness with other people. So that's really important in terms of flow. So we've talked about compassion to self and others, but also receiving compassion, but everything's got flow. How are you at showing anger towards people? How are you at being angry towards yourself? How do you go when someone's angry at you and you receive their anger? And so we all have this kind of you know, flow when it comes to these different types of emotions, for example. Um, so what you're trying to do is if someone is fearful of compassion and men who are uh, traditional masculine uh, conforming are very scared of showing, uh, sorry, experiencing compassion towards themselves and, ex- and receiving it from another. They're pretty good at delivering it to others. They're still pretty good at that. Right. That is that is not as impacted, but receiving and and um and giving to self is impacted. So one of the things that we'd be trying to do is try to get a sense of well, you know, if you had a friend who needed to go to hospital to get blood tests uh, because they were sick, but they didn't want to go, what would you say to them? And they'd typically say something back like, "Oh, you got to go, mate." You're like, "Oh, right, right." But they say to you, "I don't want. I just I'm too scared." Uh, you know, if this comes back negative, I'm screwed and I might be out of a job and I, I just can't go. So what do you do then? And they're like, oh, you know, I might tell them, can someone else take you so you don't go by yourself maybe? You know, can the missus take you? And so they're already thinking of ways to be helpful for this person, right? And um, they're like, no, 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 you know, God, God, no, no one's going to take me. It's just me. What would you do? And then usually by that sort of third prompt, they'll sort of say, oh, yeah, I guess I'll take them. And you're like, okay, so why are you doing that? What? And they're like, oh, well, you know, he needs to get the, the blood tests, you know, otherwise, you know, he might die. You know, we don't know how bad it is. He needs these tests. 
So the motivation there is to try to reduce, you know, your friend's suffering. And you're recognising that to do that, it's much easier facing stress and threat with someone than go alone. Mm. And so you already know that in order to be helpful when someone's coming up against pain and distress and angst, that experiencing it with someone else makes it slightly easier. That's really important. So what do you do when you're experiencing this <laughs> angst and stress? Well, typically if they're that person who needs it, well, they would say, no, I don't want anyone, leave me alone. I've got to take care of this myself. And it's like, okay, so it's okay to go out for someone else, but not for you. That's excellent. So what's that about? Mm. And so they've already got it within them and go, that's compassion. Taking your friend to the, to the hospital for that is, is compassion. You know it. So, you know, what's weak there, what's soft there? Well, well nothing. And they're on board with that. But then it's like, well, if it was you going to the hospital, how would you be? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, so there's one rules for friends, one rules for you. What's all that about? Where did that start from? Where did that begin? Look, you've shared so much stuff that is um, is fantastic, and I think is really helpful for people to to think about as we as we wrap up. I'd just love to ask, I guess, for anybody listening who does want to take a little bit of a step more in that direction, or if you know if there are kind of recommended books or, or steps you'd you'd take, or kind of places you would send people who want to essentially continue to become healthier as men in the light of some of the things we've talked about. Um, yeah, I mean, there's many different options. I mean, all you have to do is type in, say, um, a compassion into Google and you'll get so many hits, it can be a little bit overwhelming. But what I would suggest is um, typing in Russell Colts, um, uh, Compassion Focused Therapy, um, or uh, Russell Colts True Strength. So Russell is a psychologist in America and he looks at applying Compassion Focused Therapy, which is essentially a lot of the things I've been talking about for difficulties to do with anger and uh, anger is a real issue for a lot of men. Um, and so his program is called true strength. Um, and again, it's about trying to again, look at how we might use courage and strength to approach the things that are, are causing us a lot of pain. Um, compassion is really ways of learning how I might be helpful rather than hurtful or harmful. And so often what we do in our relationships with ourselves and others, when we are distressed is, perhaps inadvertently choose options that actually do cause more hurt and more harm. Um, sometimes it's deliberate, they're deliberately chosen, but a lot of the times they're not. So the idea is how can I engage helpfully with myself um, is really at the core. And there are many ways of doing that. Um, for sure, some it might be kindness, but for others it'll be something completely different. Well, thank you so much, James, uh, for sharing your time and your insights and um, I've definitely learned heaps during this conversation. I'm sure that others will also. Uh, any final reflection, sentence or two from you? Oh, no, it's, it's great that you're doing this. Um, I think it's fabulous. I mean, one of the, the, the aspects that we can help is trying just to get people to think a little bit more openly mm. and curiously about what mm. things might be helpful. Um, and so things like what you're doing is just absolutely brilliant from, from my perspective. And it's fantastic to know there are people like you doing this. So, uh, it's, as, as a result, it's been very, um, uh, humbling to me to be a part of invited onto the podcast. So thank you very much. 
This podcast has been proudly brought to you by the Central Coast Council and developed by Lead by Story. Help us grow the conversation by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or sharing this episode around on your social media. I'd love to hear from you. What's your experience of manhood in the modern world? Drop me a message on Instagram or at leadbystory.com.au and let's have a chat. Catch you next time on Mankind.